time is 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Faye Parks. In tonight's news, we dive into an $8 million project for safer housing in the new Dane County budget, prompted by investigative reporting surrounding a tragedy. We travel to the Alliant Energy Center for a report from the Hmong New Year celebration this weekend. And we hear from indie rocker Liz Fair on the 30th anniversary of her critically acclaimed album, Exile in Madison. Plus, we'll unveil the latest arts and culture feature. We'll revisit November 1965, and of course, every possible detail you could stand to hear about the weather. Good evening, this is Faye Parks and Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The state Senate has passed a bill that would give expecting parents a state income tax deduction prior to their child's birth. It would also raise parents and guardians income tax exemption $300 per dependent from $700 to $1,000. The bill states that unborn children are dependents as long as a qualified medical provider can detect a fetal heartbeat via ultrasound during that taxable year. While Republican Senator Romaine Quinn argued in favor of the bill, stating that a child's life begins at conception, Democratic Senator Kelda Royce says it may be part of the larger anti-choice agenda. Democrats have proposed alternatives to the bill as it stands. The bill's assembly partner is still in committee, and Governor Evers will likely veto the legislation if it also passes in the assembly and makes it to his desk. Conservative political commentator Ben Shapiro visited the UW-Madison campus on Monday at an event hosted by the campus chapter of Young Americans for Freedom, a conservative organization for youth run by former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Shapiro's 15-minute speech entitled, Stop Being Apologetic About the Superiority of Western Values, focused almost entirely on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Shapiro ended his speech by rattling off various gruesome acts of mutilation and attributing them to Hamas. The speech elicited some silent protests from supporters of Palestine, but in a change from his 2016 appearance on campus, there were no interruptions from students this time. Isthmus newspaper reports that lawyers for PETA, or People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, have filed a motion to reconsider a circuit court judge's ruling that declined to file charges against the UW-Madison Primate Research Center. That's after a Dane County judge found probable cause that the Primate Research Center violated the state's cruelty to animal laws in its handling of rhesus monkeys. In their new motion, lawyers for PETA allege that circuit court judge Nia Trammell committed a legal error in relying on claims from at least one anonymous witness not testifying under oath. PETA is looking to address an incident in 2020 when an undercover PETA member witnessed a female primate tear out almost all of her hair. That primate was later euthanized in an experiment in 2021. They also witnessed a male primate being subjected to multiple rounds of electrotherapy. In a statement, the spokesperson for the Primate Center made no comment about the judge's view of the case and characterized the allegations as unfortunate. Sauk Prairie Healthcare is the latest local victim of a cyber attack, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The healthcare system suffered an attack last week that they claim did not result in any loss of patient or employee data. It did result in some elective surgeries being postponed. The cyber attack comes after a cluster of similar in- incidences at area businesses and providers. 
Madison Dentist First Choice Dental is conducting an investigation after an incident in its computer system. Last month, American Family Insurance shut down some of its online services and internet for its building and administrators uh, noticed uh, when uh, its administrators noticed some unusual activity. And Quick Trip, the chain of more than 800 convenience stores and gas stations, suffered an IT outage and supply chain disruption for weeks following what they called a cyber incident. And after 35 years, the longtime owner of a local record shop has decided to sell. Ron Roloff has owned Strictly Discs since its founding in 1988. Now you may, now you can find nearly 150,000 records in the Monroe Street record shop, many in its voluminous basement. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that new owner Rick Stoner plans to maintain all the current staff and store operations, and he's planning to open a second location in Cambridge next summer. For more than half the states in the nation, yesterday was election day with elections for governor in Kentucky and Mississippi and state legislative races in Pennsylvania and Virginia. If the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November had you scrambling and failing to find your candidate guide, have no fear. This time around, Wisconsin was unusually sleepy with no elections on the books anywhere in the state, according to the Wisconsin Journal Sentinel. And now, on today's top stories. On Monday, the Dane County Board approved $8 million of capital funding to plan and develop safe housing for agricultural workers. That comes four years after a young Nicaraguan boy died on a Dane County farm. Our producer and my co-host this evening, Faye Parks, has the story. Dane County's budget for 2024 was finalized on Monday and rounds out to about $968 million. Notable amongst its significant investments in affordable housing is a new project, $8 million headed to develop safer housing for farm workers. That's sparked by investigative reporting from ProPublica, who earlier this year uncovered the 2019 death of 8-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez, who died on a Dane County dairy farm after being run over by heavy machinery. Dane County Supervisor Heidi Wegleitner of Central Madison says she was unaware of the boy's death until ProPublica's story in February. The fact that I didn't know about it, even though I am an elected official, Dane County Supervisor on the Health and Human Needs Committee, showed me just how marginalized these workers and their families are in our system, in our community. Just looking and, and reading that article and seeing all the different ways our county, our state, our federal government has failed, have failed Jefferson Rodriguez and his dad and his family. I wanted to do, you know, something about it. She's since spearheaded the effort to create a farm workers housing fund. She says the project will initially hire a consultant to assess the scope of farm worker safety needs. Wegleitner adds that safety issues are especially serious on small dairy farms because the owners can take advantage of a number of loopholes like fewer visits from occupational health workers evaluating their equipment and operations. Melissa Sanchez was one of the co-authors on ProPublica's investigative report. We have seen that dairy workers in particular are excluded from a lot of state and federal protections in American labor law and housing protections for migrant workers for a variety of reasons. 
And so I think what we're seeing in Dane County to have like local officials at the county level look for ways to address some of those gaps and protections is really fascinating. Sanchez says that she and her colleague reached out to a number of supervisors on the Dane County Board, making sure that they were aware of their reporting and the broader issue of farm workers' safety. They kept in contact with any supervisors, like Wegleitner, that responded favorably. Sanchez and Wegleitner both say that many immigrant farm workers suffer due to language barriers. According to Wegleitner, county officials are looking for ways to improve translation services and make sure that every department can help folks to the best of their ability. Since the Farm Workers Housing Fund is just entering the fact-finding phase, there is no clear timeline as to when they'll break ground on the new housing facilities. And, Supervisor Wegleitner says, the $8 million listed in next year's budget are just the initial funds. They're not likely to cover the entire cost of the project. However, as things develop, they may use some of that money to acquire land or hire design consultants. Numerous details are still in development. For example, the county's percentage stake in the facilities has yet to be determined, and they have not determined how much farm workers will eventually pay to reside there. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Wisconsin is home to one of the largest populations of Hmong folks in the nation, with more than 58,000 Hmong individuals living in the state. Hmong culture was on display last weekend in a celebration of Hmong New Year. WORT reporter Diego Alegria was on the scene. That's the sound of silver coins, which represent wealth and adorn traditional clothes in Hmong culture. This past Saturday and Sunday, the Alliance Center was alive with the sound of silver coins as families and local groups celebrated the Hmong New Year. The event was organized by the Wisconsin Hmong Association, a nonprofit that works to develop academic and social programming for Hmong Americans, particularly in Dane County. B. Vang, the association's cultural coordinator, says this year's celebration came with some new ways to celebrate. So far we uh, have uh, two uh, special awards, uh, one for other uh, uh, community leaders uh, in the Dane uh, County area here, that we have an award right there. And the next one will be uh, for a, a, a scholarship uh, from um, our Miss Grant um, uh, Midwest here. So these are two new things for this year. Lucy Maisi Vu of Milwaukee works in Blia Young's a family business. This is their first time selling fresh fruits and traditional food in Madison, like the mangosteen, the rambutan, and fried pork skin. The people's top choice is their sugar cane juice. It is 100% organic, just bamboo that we just, you know, rinse with water and then we just press it. It's super sweet and super healthy, nothing added to it. Other delicacies on display included papaya, boba tea and pork belly with sticky rice. This event reminds Sivu of her childhood, where her mom would always squeeze us into our mom clothes, like we could barely eat, we could barely breathe and walk, but after doing it for so many years, you just appreciate all the hard work that goes into the mom clothes and all the people who take the time to wear the traditional as well as the modern outfit. Community organizations also inform the attendees about their services. Peng Her is the CEO of the Hmong Institute, a local nonprofit that provides resources and services to resettled refugees of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Their programs focus on youth education, mental health, food security, and cultural preservation for the Hmong community. 
He says language plays a key role in their programming because it teaches Hmong kids how to read and write and speak in Hmong because we believe that if a child is grounded in their home language and culture, they do better in school and in life. This program aims to address their students' low academic performance in reading and math. You know, here in Dane County or in this Madison School District, about 76% um, of Hmong students are not proficient in reading, right? as well as um, almost 70% are not proficient in math. The Institute's mental health program not only serves Hmong seniors, but also the Lao, Cambodian and Nepali communities in Madison. Hare told WORT that the program also provides translation services for folks needing medical care. Since the pandemic and in order to address recent inflation, the Institute has started distributing culturally relevant food boxes in Madison every second Friday of every month. By doing this food distribution, we started with 50 families and quickly the community heard about it, came to us, and uh, now it's up to 450. At the peak, we're up at 550, but we had to just scale it back because we don't have a lot of volunteers because we pack everything ourselves. Hmong Institute also runs an egg roll fundraiser several times a year to support their services for youth, women, and elders. While this false fundraiser ended last week, you can find info for the next egg roll fundraiser online at themongoinstitute.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Diego Alegria. This June marked the 30th anniversary of Exile in Guyville, released by Matador Records in 1993. It was the debut album for indie rocker Liz Fair and pushed back against rock tropes present in male-dominated rock at that time. Now, Liz Fair is on tour performing Exile in Guyville in its entirety. She'll stop in Madison in exactly one month. For more on her debut album and her career since then, uh, feature contributor Helena White sat down for an interview with Fair a few weeks ago. Tonight, we'll air the first installment of that two-part interview. Liz Fair blew up the Chicago indie music scene in 1993 when she released her debut double album, Exile in Guyville. Met with critical acclaim and listed at number 56 on Rolling Stone's 500 Best Albums, Guyville was a bold and innovative explosion of songs chronicling and critiquing Fair's experiences in the male-dominated Chicago rock scene. Now Fair is celebrating the 30th anniversary of Exile in Guyville with a U.S. tour. She'll be coming to the Sylvie here in Madison on Friday, December 8th. In September, I had a chance to talk to Liz Fair, and I began by asking her to describe the music scene of the bohemian Chicago neighborhood where the album was recorded and where she hung out. It was a post-punk scene in my mind, a very DIY, you know, below commercial grade type of music and adamantly so. I think there was a lot of people that wanted to develop a kind of separate economic system. You know, I know there were people that would help each other tour and be able to afford to tour. 
there's a lot of community spirit in the Wicker Park scene, I thought, but they were also a little suspicious of outsiders, and I think I was regarded as an outsider a lot of the time. In 93, Fair had recently graduated from Oberlin College, had briefly lived in San Francisco, and then moved to Chicago. There was something very different about the Chicago scene that she hadn't experienced in San Francisco and Ohio. Well, it was so male-dominated, and that was one of its most singular features. New York had a lot more women in the scene, and I think San Francisco, which had a lot more women in the scene, but Chicago really was Guyville. And you know who coined that term was Blackie Onassis from Urge Overkill. It's like a full of guys, guys, you know? It being Guyville, what was that like for you? It was a little bit difficult to find your voice because to have anything to say in the conversation. There were so many men that were experts in indie music and they really prided themselves on knowing what band broke up and reformed into what other band and the history of all this stuff. So I've been uh, listening to Guyville lately, you know, to get ready for this interview. I've been dreaming about it. It's playing through my head all the time. There's some um, lyrics like, they egg me on, play me like a pit bull. I lock my door at night. I memorize their stupid rules from Help Me Mary. Can you tell me more about those lyrics? Well, I think the inspiration behind that was I was living, I was subletting from John Henderson, who ran an indie pop label called Feel Good All Over. And so a lot of times when his bands would come to town, he would let them sort of crash at his place. And I had like a back room. And I just, I felt like I didn't have any personal space. Like Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, I was struggling at that point in my life to feel like I had the space to be an artist. Part of what was cool about that scene was people stayed up late. They went out to a lot of places. You know, we would go all over the city drinking at various cool clubs to listen to the music. But it was another thing to feel like you had no home to go home to. And for me as an artist, I realized how important that was to me. And I felt this pressure that my whole world, both at home and out, had become about this pretty much male rock scene. I hear you. I pretty much had it with them. Guys behaving badly. Guys behaving badly. What other songs on your Exile in Guyville do you think really address that kind of issue? All of them? (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of them, I suppose. Exile and Guyville, to me, was a multi-layered, I don't know what language I can use on this interview. I don't know if you'd have to bleep it. I can bleep it. Go for it. I can bleep it. It was a multi-layered 
new to the whole, I had, I'd had it. I'd gone to Oberlin where there were a ton of bands. Everybody was in a band, but there was a lot more women in those bands. But still, indie rock, was, alternative rock was predominantly male. And I had been told that my taste in music was inferior. I had been told that the radio was a stupid place to get music in the first place. I'd been told that if I didn't have an extensive vinyl collection, I had no business in the conversation. You know, I just, I was tired of being the Eliza Doolittle of the music scene when I felt that my parents had exposed me to great music growing up. I know I'd gone to symphony, I'd been to operas, I'd been to theater, I had lived in England. I had been exposed to a lot of music and I had played music my entire life. So the fact that I was marginalized and told that my opinion didn't matter and that my taste was terrible pissed me off and it just kind of kept growing inside me until I exploded on that record with kind of sarcastic and cutting remarks I guess it wouldn't shock you if I drove right out the back of your eyes I can't be trusted they're saying I can't be That was Liz Fair talking about her groundbreaking album Exile in Guyville. To celebrate the 30th anniversary of the album's release, Liz Fair will perform Guyville in its entirety for the last time during her US tour. Liz Fair will be at the Sylvie in Madison on Friday, December 8th. A special thank you to Sybil Augustine for arranging this interview. For WORT 89.9 FM, this is Helena White. Catch Helena's interview with Liz Fair in full next Thursday on Psychoacoustics. It'll also air in parts tonight and next Wednesday on Guilty Pleasures with Casey Fox. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Faye Parks, this evening. Thanks for staying with us. Tonight, we're unveiling our newest bi-weekly feature on the Wednesday evening news focused on local arts and culture. We're calling it Framing Culture. Hosted by contributor Jose Carlos Texiera, a local visual artist, filmmaker, and educator, this segment will range from art, architecture, design and literature, to urban life and cultural projects happening in Southern Wisconsin. Episodes will air every other Wednesday on this program. And on this first episode, host Jose considers the unique geography of orphaned spaces. Framing culture. Hey, how are you? I'm great, how are you? It's nice to see you, Jose. It's so nice to see you. It's a beautiful sunny morning, a little chill, but you know, quite a beautiful fall day. Yes, it's a beautiful fall day. It's a Wisconsin day. 
My name is Maril. Ingram. Yes. So welcome to our Framing Culture. And today I have the honor and the pleasure of welcoming Maril Ingram. She is an environmental geographer and an author. So you brought me here. I'm just wondering, what is this about? What would you say? Where are we standing right now? So we are in front of your house and uh, we are in this piece of land, garden kind of thing. But is it yours or is it already municipal land? What's going on here? It's a street terrace. It's a few feet wide. I'd say maybe 20 feet long. Shouldn't be very complicated. But actually, I've spent a lot of time here, Jose, building relationships, losing relationships, thinking about what's going on. So I'd like to introduce you to somebody here that's part of this street terrace right here. Here we are. I'm super happy to introduce you to this new character, this new neighbor of mine called a London plane tree, but I think we know them as sycamores. They're actually native to Wisconsin, but this is a hybrid. And the reason why they use a hybrid is because it's a little more resistant to something called anthracnose, which afflicts this kind of tree. But basically this is an awesome urban tree. She's got lots of attributes that make her a, a great neighbor because she can withstand the regular sorts of abuse we heap on our street terraces. That's wonderful to meet your new beloved neighbor here. I actually uh, became acquainted with a beautiful new book by Muriel. It's called Loving Orphaned Space. And so there is a lot about the politics of the space and about invisibility. Yes. When I think about orphaned space, there's two things I think about. But the way I always start is just infrastructure and how the infrastructure that's all around us, that's sustaining us, making it possible to get from here to there, making it possible to turn the lights on, making it possible to have water and not have water when we don't want it. I think a lot about infrastructure and how it supports us and maintains us in so many ways and also is constantly in a process of kind of organizing us and and shaping our relationships with our world and our environment. And I'm interested in how it shapes it. And I think it's a great starting place to perhaps begin to challenge some of the ways that it shapes those, particularly how it kind of minimizes potential interactions and relationships. And those can go from the very simple, just excitement I expressed over my new friend, this tree, actually some pretty righteous stuff related to taking over space and having more political say and influence in the spaces all around us. So I actually think there's a lot going on in infrastructure. What you say is quite interesting, Muriel, because it makes me think about how we see, think, and inhabit space and place and how actually a lot of things go under the radar is as if our eyes and souls were kind of blind to it. You are keen in exploring and diving deeper into all those spaces and spots that actually are unruly. They cannot be, or they will not be legislated or organized and therefore they become really abandoned. And so why do you think that dystopian relationship exists between us and all these in-between weird invisible spaces? That's a fascinating question. I really think there's a lot going on that's both about control and of course on the surface it makes sense. We want to control our environment so it's predictable for us, right? So we can go about our lives. Also has to do 
with control and and um, fear over loss of it. That's great that you are bringing up the unruly and the uncontrolled Jose, because I think that's a beautiful connection to what I think about as the emotional, psychological, kind of psychic connection that orphaning severs. And and by orphaning, what I'm really talking about is the ways that infrastructure involves so much policing of our environment. So there's the physical policing. There's things like the sidewalks we we build, the asphalting we put down in order to sort of um, make a, a kind of consistent, even sur- surface. There's the mowing that we do, the pesticide, insecticide to minimize disturbing species. Uh, we have lots of regulations about how wide, how tall. All of these things do keep us safe, but I think we lose a lot in the process of having these kind of standard approaches to things. And as part of that loss, I think, is this kind of psychic not seeing things. There is the rejection of the void. There is the rejection that a street terrace is invisible. And then there is the opportunity for loving, right? Which is a psychic and also very physical kind of experience and activity. It's opening up a whole bunch of different worlds all through a street terrace. And it makes me think about this other dimension, which I'm sure, and of course you cover in your book, the cultural dimension to it all and how different cultures, different societies, regions in the world actually deal with space in a formal or informal way. In North America, specifically where we are, how do you see this as an obsessive desire for ruling that makes the rest invisible? Because when you go to Latin America, it's a completely different game. No question. You go into different places and different relationships of infrastructure will always sort of help us think about things culturally. And actually, I I do have to say that when I was thinking about the book, I was reading a lot from people who were writing from cities in other countries, and particularly what you might call sort of southern hemisphere, but large cities with vast informal networks. And I think it was the nature of the informality which really allowed me to hear people talking about infrastructure as a much more live kind of set of systems. And that helped me think about how, in fact, we assume our infrastructure is going to work for us. And because it works, we no longer see it, right? That is uh, Heidegger's tools. If it works, you don't, you don't have to think about it. But of course, climate change, other things happen, and we begin to sort of say, hey, you know, we're getting, we're flooding. Why is that? And then infrastructure comes into our consciousness. How, what you are describing, it's sort of the, f- the other side of the coin into the things that we reject in ourselves, the way we conduct our lives so neatly organized, not embracing the void, not embracing the messiness. How, how about that? Yes, I think that the loving part of loving orphan space. So we reject the void and then we begin to see and we use all kind we have the opportunity to use all our senses when we see. We can smell, hear, listen, read, ask questions. I do think that many of us don't see things or don't build relationships because we don't want to go through the pain of loss. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about this this tree here is because I lost a tree of, uh, that I was incredibly fond of. By the way, your neighborhood is? Oh, this is an east side. Um, this is the Dunbar Spring. No, this is the um, Sassy neighborhood. Sorry. Sassy. Beautiful near Lake Monona. Yes. You should visit and explore all these terraces and forgotten places. 
I, I got really fond of my street trees. I had relationships with the squirrels. I really cared about that tree. And then I, the city came and they took it down because a neighbor complained. That was not only a physical, but also an emotional loss. Exactly. And that was before one of our hottest summers on record. It was an incredible shade tree, all gone. Inevitably, when you start peeling back the layers of spaces that are around you, when you start investigating and asking questions, stuff can emerge that isn't comfortable. And um, there are always histories here. And most of the land that we occupy has had some violent histories. And not that long ago, I could look just just up the street, just, just over there where that tree is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... I would have seen a mound. I would have seen big, beautiful oaks with spreading branches and underneath a mound and probably the outline of one just over the hill. And I would be standing actually in a cluster of mounds and that were part of this incredible ceremonial tapestry. This this must have been an incredibly joy-filled and awe-filled space. Thanks so much for that insight. Um, It was lovely to be here with you. This is a to-be-continued conversation because your theme and your book is brilliant and fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. I really appreciated the opportunity to walk on a street terrace with you today. It's now time for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we got a crack or two of thunder in the early hours this morning. You might have caught that. Uh, It was around 2.30 or 3 a.m. We had a spring-like surge of moisture and warm air streaming in above us, uh, just above ground level between about 2,000 and 4,000 feet on a low-level jet from the southwest around that time. And that quickly produced enough instability up above it in what was otherwise a fairly cool air column, uh, both above and below, to launch a few short thunderstorms. And those put down uh, 41 hundredths of an inch of rain out at the airport. That was a bit more than I was expecting. The uh, nocturnal pulse of warm air last night and uh, moisture aloft was occurring ahead of a surface low pressure circulation that was approaching from the southwest and ended up actually passing by us to our south today. So that meant that the cool southeast and east winds that we had through the uh, this past nighttime period in the lowest couple thousand feet remained easterly down here at ground level through the day with the surface warm front holding down in Illinois, but also appearing here just up overhead where uh, 50 degree, 50 degree plus temperatures actually uh, were a couple thousand feet above us while we struggled down here at ground level through the mid 40s. Uh, You might expect that with the warmer temperatures like that and more moisture actually aloft than at the surface today, we might have seen some additional rain coming down, especially with an elevated frontal boundary up there between the uh, easterly near-surface winds and the southwesterly winds up above. But as it happens, we also had a southwesterly upper-level jet that would be up at about four or five miles above ground level, approaching from our uh, west and north, which has been slowly edging over the area uh, through the day today. So that led to some drying actually up above about seven or 8,000 feet. So with a relatively short saturated part of the air column near ground level and no uh, sustained lift, uh, we mostly saw just some heavy overcast today and occasional drizzle. 
Uh, we did develop one last uh, line of showers and thunderstorms over the southeastern part of the listening area late this afternoon. That was associated with shifting winds and a frontal passage uh, a little higher up the air column, up in the juicier air, up in the second mile above ground level that I was mentioning. But now that all of that's passed, we'll see a little of consequence in the sensible weather, really, for the next probably four or five days. Uh, except perhaps for the winds, which will be something of an issue tomorrow. They'll be ratcheting up from the northwest as dry, cool Canadian air comes subsiding earthward on uh, what will be aligned winds through the uh, lowest couple of miles of the air column. Uh, have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have linked in the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage. And you'll see the approaching southwesterly upper jet that I was mentioning and get uh, something of a wider context also for what's going on, uh, namely that today's little system was just one in a series of what are mostly fairly modest and quite fast moving waves from west to east across the country. The wide upper trough that's uh, now approaching from the northwest behind this current wave will produce a cool and generally uh, uneventful spell from tomorrow uh, pretty much out through the entire weekend as surface high pressure uh, out of central Canada, pushes down across the lower, uh, across the Great Lakes and Eastern Plains in the lowest couple miles of the atmosphere. Uh, the only puzzle I can foresee over this coming time period is just how far south uh, the cumulus and stratocumulus will develop on the day Friday. That'll be when the pit of the upper air trough will be passing overhead here, along with the coolest air down at the surface. Uh, best guesses for the cloudy clear line puts it somewhere uh, just through the listening area or perhaps just north uh, with clearer skies then to the south. Uh, we may have a chance of some sprinkly rains as warm air return uh, gets underway finally Sunday, but otherwise it's looking uh, significantly warmer for next week and largely dry as well as we get a big beefy upper ridge passing over us from the uh, west along this uh, wave train. But back to tonight for the details, skies will gradually uh, clear through the night from west to east uh, with uh, northerly winds backing a little more northwesterly and uh, increasing to 12 to 18 miles per hour. That'll start the temperatures dropping from about the mid 40s where they are now down probably to the upper 30s by daybreak. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies through the day along with a decent uh, pressure gradient will allow for some pretty gusty winds in the afternoon, especially when deeper vertical mixing will occur. So sustained west to northwest winds up in the 12 to 20 mile per hour range will be gusting uh, well into the 30 mile per hour range probably during the afternoon. Temperatures will recover to the mid or upper 40s. Westerly winds will subside a bit more overnight coming down to 8 to 12 miles per hour and temperatures will drop to the low 30s. Friday, mostly sunny morning skies may see an uptick in cumulus or possibly even some stratocumulus as we get into the midday or afternoon hours. That will be likelier the farther north you happen to be. Uh, there are also model outcomes that keep the entire listing area clear Friday, so that one's a bit of a crapshoot. Temperatures will uh, be modulated accordingly across the region, reaching the low to mid 40s if it stays clear, but probably getting stuck in the upper 30s if we see a lot of cloud cover. Winds, in any case, will remain a bit breezy still Friday with uh, west-northwesterly winds up at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Lighter, more north-northwesterly uh, winds overnight will allow temperatures to drop into the upper 20s, probably with a little more than uh, passing clouds that night. And Saturday will be mostly sunny, I think, with surface, the surface uh, ridgeline passing and backing light winds uh, more southeasterly by the day's end. Temperatures will reach the low to mid-40s. <coughs> Pardon me. And then high and mid-level clouds may continue to pass with greater frequency later in the day and in the overnight, and that should keep temperatures in the low and mid-30s overnight. 
Sunday, you'll see a good bit of passing, uh, mostly high and mid-level cloud cover still, with uh, temperatures heading back towards 50 on strengthening south and southeasterly winds. And I think we should stay dry uh, through the day Sunday as well, with only an outside chance then maybe of uh, rain as we get on towards the evening or in the overnight period. At the moment of the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 46 degrees. The dew point temperature is uh, 44. Winds are out of the north at 8 miles per hour. Uh, low overcast still up at about 400 feet over the city. And the barometer is at uh, 29.75 inches of mercury and uh, beginning to rise fairly rapidly now. It's now 6.50 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to November 1965, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, George McGovern, Paul Soglin, Sonny and Cher, Roland Kirk, and Tracy Nelson all made news here. Stu Levitan has all the bold-faced details on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, November 1965. The country's two most important civil rights leaders visit the UW campus this month. On the second, John Lewis, the 25 year old national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, returns to Madison for two speaking engagements on the second starting with a noon rally on the Memorial Union steps. That night, he tells a crowd of about 400 in the Great Hall that, quote, racism is embedded in the very heart of this country, a system of segregation which puts more value on property rights than on human rights. After a standing ovation, the group moves up Langdon Street to the Hillel Foundation for a freedom hootenanny. During the voting rights march from Selma to Montgomery in March, Lewis was severely beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. On the 23rd, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. returns to the Stock Pavilion to speak on, quote, the future of integration, the same title as his address in 1962, but with a far different text. The Baptist minister gets a standing ovation from a near-capacity crowd of about 2,600 with his call for a massive program of public works expanded public education, an increase in the minimum wage to $2 an hour, and the employment of blacks in southern law enforcement. November 23rd is also Campus Election Day, and among those elected to the WSA Student Senate is history graduate student Paul Soglin. The Illinois native campaigned for, quote, a radical approach to student government, one that challenges the decadent order, in which, quote, the student joins with the administration in determining curriculum, tenure, and other major decisions. Soglin wins a narrow victory after one of his two opponents is disqualified for a false campaign poster. Students also approved by two to one a referendum directing the WSA to limit itself to campus issues and not take stands on national or international issues that don't, quote, directly affect UW students. And a professional politician comes to campus, U.S. Senator George McGovern, Democrat of South Dakota, for a day-long appearance as the UW's politician-in-residence. 
recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross during World War II, McGovern calls for a stop to the bombing in Vietnam, but not a military withdrawal. He also visits with his daughter Susan, a student at the university. In other protest news, six members of the Committee for Direct Action, arrested during their sit-in at the entrance to Truex Air Base last month, are found guilty of loitering in a public street and fined $25. The activists, leaders of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, were attempting a citizen's arrest of the base commander, a citizen of Canada. And it's a blustery 20 degrees on the Saturday after Thanksgiving when a dozen protesters from the group Vietnam Dissenters, dressed in black with fences painted white, march from campus to the Capitol carrying a coffin made of paper and wood. As they near the Capitol, about 15 members of the group, citizens in support of the United States soldiers in Vietnam, hurl raw eggs and smash the mock coffin. Police observe the assault without response. More than 4,000 residence hall students put their money where their mouths would have been and give up their Thursday dinner the week before Thanksgiving. They raise more than $3,500 in this year's Fast for Freedom fundraiser for the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign and the National Student Association. There are encouraging signs in the Triangle Urban Renewal Project. Interest in the proposed shopping center for the southeast corner of Park and Regent Streets is so strong that the Madison Redevelopment Authority votes for a design competition. Rather than simply selling the land to the highest bidder, the MRA will set a price and have a panel of experts judge the submitted designs, then negotiate with the firm with the best plan and highest economic value. At least four firms have formally expressed interest in building the center, which is to include a grocery store and various neighborhood retail businesses. There is no question we will be able to install an excellent center which will service the area, says MRA Director Saul Levin. But another MRA project has a less upbeat update, as the first report on the South Madison Rehabilitation Area documents the pocket of poverty in the area south of Winger Creek and east of South Park Street. One-third of the 202 households are considered impoverished, with annual incomes of less than 3,000, almost three times the county-wide figure of 12.8%. Unemployment is 24%, 10 times the Dane County figure. 59% of the 721 individuals living there are non-white, and just over half of the total population is under 19. It's a stable neighborhood. 15% have lived there all their lives, or more than 25 years, and almost two-thirds have been residents more than five years. But more than 25% say they moved there because it was the only area a black family could find housing. 15% say it was all they could afford. Support for a renewal project in South Madison is overwhelming. 88% think it's a good or very good idea. Madison Police Chief Wilbur Emery finally makes real progress in his war on bicycles. As the Traffic Commission recommends an ordinance banning two-wheelers from the Capitol Square and State Street and restricting their use on several major traffic arteries during rush hour. Also under consideration, mandatory bike registration and licensure of bicyclists and formally designating bike routes. 
Mayor Otto Feske calls the proposed ban an imperfect solution and promises to give, quote, careful consideration to student opposition. There's a wide range of musical offerings this month. On the 8th, jazz multi-instrumentalist Roland Kirk dazzles the capacity crowd at Turner Hall in a benefit for the Committee to End the War in Vietnam and the Madison Citizens for Peace in Vietnam. A week later, genial folk rock chart toppers Sonny and Cher delight the teens for two shows at the Orpheum, and homegrown recorded music too. On the 9th, Central High School grad Tracy Nelson, still a month shy of 21, releases her first folk blues record album, Deep Are the Roots, on the Prestige label. But the Shorewood Hills native, who volunteers at the Plymouth Congregational Church's daycare center and has completed two years of studies in social work at the UW, isn't planning on a career in music. She thinks she'll go into teaching. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was Gigi Royko Maurer. Your reporter was Diego Alegria. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan and Helena White. And a special welcome to our new feature contributor, Jose Carlos Texiera. Ken Brady sat, on, sat in on engineering duties this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast. Thank you, Faye. And Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Faye Parks. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.